Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. Sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker and folks on today's show. Our interview with Chat G. Peter D., an AI-generated conversation with Peter Drucker. How's it going, Ron? This is great, Ed. I'm so excited by this. This is an experiment, but I'm really looking forward to it. We've been talking about it for a while, so this is really exciting. Yes, and we took inspiration from Tyler Cowen, who conducted an interview with Jonathan Swift, I believe, uh, in, in, I guess this is, I don't know, three or four months ago. He was very early to the party on this. Uh, we've got some pretty interesting things that we've done. Basically, what we did is we asked ChatGPT to pretend it was Peter Drucker, and we asked it a series of questions. We took the responses that it came up with and fed that into Eleven Labs, which is a, a program or online uh app that allows you to generate a voice. We generated a voice that not, does not sound like Peter Drucker, but just is in his, um, it's, it's an older man's voice. So that's that's what, what we kind of used. Does not have the Austrian accent at all. But we think that it really encapsulates, I think, the spirit of what Peter was about. So anything else you want to add to that before we get to our interview, Ron? Yeah, no, I was really impressed with some of the answers. Having studied Drucker for a long time, it, it certainly rhymes with his thinking. And uh, I'm really interested in our listeners' feedback. If they want us to interview other thinkers from uh, prior eras, that would be, I think it'd be a lot of fun. All right, let's get started. Let's read them in. Peter Ferdinand Drucker, November 19th, 1909 to November 11th, 2005, was an Austrian-American management consultant, educator, and author whose writings contributed to the philosophical and practical foundations of modern management theory. He was also a leader in the development of management education and invented the concepts known as management by objectives and self-control. He has been described as the founder of modern management. Peter Drucker's books and articles, both scholarly and popular, explored how humans are organized across the business, government, and non-for-profit sectors of society. He is one of the best-known and widely influential thinkers and writers on the subject of management theory and practice. Welcome to the soul of enterprise, Chat G. Peter D. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, Peter, since it's been almost 20 years since your passing, I'd like you to first reflect on what you think uh, your legacy has been in the business world. Have there been uh, any of your ideas that influence people in a way that you didn't anticipate? Reflecting on my legacy, I am humbled by the impact my ideas have had on the business world. Throughout my career, I sought to emphasize the importance of effective management and leadership as fundamental drivers of organizational success. My focus on the human side of management, the significance of innovation, and the concept of management as a social function have all contributed to reshaping the way businesses operate. One aspect that may have exceeded my initial expectations is the global reach of my principles. 
The idea of management by objectives, for instance, has been embraced by organizations around the world, fostering a culture of accountability and goal alignment. The concept of decentralization and the empowerment of knowledge workers have also gained traction beyond what I may have anticipated. I am heartened to see that my writings have spurred conversations on the importance of lifelong learning, adaptability, and the continual pursuit of knowledge in the ever-evolving business landscape. Furthermore, the concept of a knowledge society and the recognition of the intangible value of information and expertise have grown more relevant in this digital age. The influence of my thoughts on the role of leadership in shaping organizational culture has extended beyond the business realm, finding resonance in areas such as nonprofit organizations, government agencies, and even educational institutions. In essence, while I am pleased with the reception of my ideas, I am also gratified by the depth and breadth of their impact across diverse sectors. The dynamism of the business world, coupled with the evolving needs of society, continues to shed new light on the relevance and adaptability of the principles I have espoused. What about the opposite? What were some ideas that you thought should or would have gained traction by now? Indeed, there were certain ideas that I had hoped would have gained more traction by now, given their potential to enhance organizational effectiveness and societal progress. One such concept is the notion of social responsibility of business. I have long advocated that businesses should not only focus on profits, but also take into consideration their impact on the broader community and environment. I envisioned a future where businesses would proactively engage in initiatives that contribute to the well-being of society, going beyond legal and regulatory requirements. While there has been progress in this area, I believe there is still room for more businesses to fully embrace the idea of social responsibility as an integral part of their operations, not just as a peripheral concern. Additionally, the concept of management as a liberal art is another area where I had hoped for greater adoption. I believe that effective management requires a holistic understanding of various disciplines, much like a liberal arts education. The ability to synthesize information from diverse fields and apply it to real-world challenges can lead to more innovative and nuanced decision-making. While some institutions have embraced this concept, I believe there is still a need for a broader recognition of the value of a well-rounded, multidisciplinary approach to management education. Furthermore, the idea of planned abandonment is one that I thought would have gained more attention. In a rapidly changing world, organizations should regularly assess their activities and be willing to discontinue those that no longer align with their strategic goals. Embracing planned abandonment allows organizations to free up resources for more promising initiatives and maintain a competitive edge. I had hoped to see a greater emphasis on this principle as organizations grapple with the challenges of resource allocation and long-term sustainability. While these ideas may not have fully realized the level of traction I had envisioned, I remain optimistic that the evolving business landscape and societal shifts will continue to shed light on their significance and encourage their broader adoption in the years to come. Let me push back on the, the social responsibility 
of business concept and and ask you what your take on on Milton Friedman's argument that the social responsibility of business is to increase profits. Milton Friedman's argument that the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits reflects a perspective that emphasizes the primacy of shareholder value and profit maximization as the primary purpose of a business. While I respect Friedman's viewpoint and acknowledge the importance of generating returns for shareholders, I hold a broader perspective on the role of business in society. From my vantage point, businesses do not exist in isolation. They operate within a complex web of relationships with employees, customers, suppliers, and the broader community. The concept of the social responsibility of business recognizes that businesses have a role to play in contributing positively to society beyond financial gains. This perspective does not advocate sacrificing profits, but rather suggests that businesses can and should be mindful of their impact on various stakeholders and the environment. In a dynamic and interconnected world, businesses that embrace social responsibility can benefit in several ways. First, a reputation for ethical conduct and contributing to societal well-being can enhance a company's brand and customer loyalty, ultimately supporting long-term profitability. Second, businesses that take proactive steps to address social and environmental challenges can mitigate risks associated with regulatory changes, consumer preferences, and public opinion. Third, by engaging with their communities and investing in socially responsible initiatives, businesses can create a more stable and supportive environment for their operations. Ultimately, the debate between shareholder value and social responsibility is not an either-or proposition. Both perspectives hold validity, and finding the right balance is essential. While I respect Milton Friedman's viewpoint, I remain committed to the belief that businesses have the capacity to contribute positively to society, while also pursuing financial success. The challenge lies in aligning these dual objectives in a way that leads to sustainable and responsible business practices. But isn't Friedman's argument that if a a business does not provide value to a society, then it won't be able to sustain itself in the long term anyway? Um, Are not, as you have said, profits the price we pay for tomorrow? Indeed, Milton Friedman's argument that a business must provide value to society in order to sustain itself aligns with a fundamental truth. Businesses that fail to deliver value to their customers, meet their needs, or address societal concerns are less likely to endure over the long term. Profitability in this context can indeed be seen as a measure of the value a business creates for its customers and stakeholders. I have often emphasized that profits are the price we pay for tomorrow. What I mean by this is that profits are essential for a business's sustainability and ability to invest in innovation, employee development, and other activities that contribute to long-term success. However, it's important to note that this perspective does not negate the concept of social responsibility. While businesses must be profitable to ensure their continued existence, they also have a broader responsibility to consider their impact on the well-being of society and the environment. 
Responsible business practices not only contribute to the sustainability of the business itself, but also contribute to the overall health and vitality of the communities in which they operate. Profitability and social responsibility are not mutually exclusive. They can coexist and reinforce each other. In essence, Friedman's argument and my perspective on the social responsibility of business are not fundamentally at odds. They offer complementary insights into the complex relationship between businesses and society. Profitability is a vital aspect of a business's success, and social responsibility enhances its overall value proposition and sustainability. The challenge for businesses is to find the right balance between these two dimensions, recognizing that both are crucial for long-term prosperity. What do you think about the concerns of some like uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and, quite frankly, yours truly, that these societal concerns can be manipulated and are, are oftentimes just greenwashing? Your concerns, along with those voiced by Vivek Ramaswamy and others, regarding the potential manipulation of societal concerns and the phenomenon of greenwashing are valid and reflective of a broader skepticism that exists in the business and societal landscape. The issue of authenticity and genuine commitment to social responsibility is indeed a critical one. The term greenwashing refers to the practice of presenting a false or misleading image of environmentally friendly practices in order to appear more socially responsible than a company actually is. This practice can undermine the credibility of businesses and erode public trust. It highlights the need for transparency, accountability, and a clear demonstration of tangible actions rather than just superficial marketing efforts. To address these concerns, it is essential for businesses to approach social responsibility with a genuine and sincere commitment. Actions must align with words, and the intent behind these actions should be to make a meaningful and positive impact on society and the environment. Rather than focusing solely on optics or short-term gains, businesses should adopt a long-term perspective that recognizes the interdependence between their success and the well-being of their stakeholders. The challenge for businesses is to navigate this complex landscape with integrity and authenticity open communication, measurable goals, and a willingness to adapt and improve based on feedback are crucial components of a credible social responsibility strategy. Moreover, the role of external oversight, such as regulatory bodies and independent organizations, can also play a significant role in holding businesses accountable for their claims and actions. In essence, while the concerns of manipulation and greenwashing are valid, they should not discourage the pursuit of social responsibility. Rather, they should inspire a higher standard of ethical conduct and a commitment to making a genuine difference. Businesses that approach societal concerns with sincerity and take concrete steps to address them can help build trust, foster positive relationships, and contribute to a more sustainable and responsible business ecosystem. Well, thanks, uh, Chat G. Peter D. Uh, this has been great. We want to remind our listeners that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Follow 
Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back to our Chat G Peter D show. And Peter, I have a question. You coined the terms knowledge economy and knowledge worker. How are the knowledge economy and knowledge workers different than those that preceded them? Indeed, the terms knowledge economy and knowledge worker were concepts that I introduced to describe a significant shift in the nature of work and the economic landscape. These concepts highlight the transformation from traditional industrial and manufacturing-based economies to ones centered around knowledge, information, and expertise. The key differences between the knowledge economy and the economies that preceded them, often referred to as agrarian or industrial economies, lie in the nature of production value creation, and the roles of workers. In the agrarian and industrial economies, the primary focus was on the production of tangible goods such as crops, machinery, and physical products. In the knowledge economy, the emphasis shifts towards the production and manipulation of information, ideas, and innovation. The creation, distribution, and application of knowledge become central to economic activities. While value in agrarian and industrial economies was often derived from the efficient use of resources and the scale of production, the knowledge economy places greater emphasis on intellectual capital, creativity, and intangible assets. The ability to generate, apply, and leverage knowledge becomes a primary driver of competitive advantage and economic success. In the earlier economies, manual labor and routine tasks were predominant. The knowledge economy introduces the concept of the knowledge worker, individuals whose work involves the generation, manipulation, and dissemination of information and ideas. 
Knowledge workers rely on their expertise, problem-solving skills, an ability to think critically and adapt to changing circumstances. The knowledge economy places a premium on education, continuous learning, and the acquisition of specialized skills. Knowledge workers require higher levels of education and training to stay relevant and contribute effectively to the economy. This shift elevates the importance of intellectual capabilities over physical labor. The knowledge economy is closely intertwined with advances in technology, particularly information technology and digital communication. Technology facilitates the rapid exchange of information, collaboration across distances, and the ability to process and analyze large volumes of data. In the knowledge economy, innovation and creative problem-solving become essential for staying competitive. Businesses must continuously innovate to develop new products, services and processes to meet evolving consumer demands and market conditions. In short, the knowledge economy and the concept of knowledge workers represent a paradigm shift in economic and work-related dynamics. They highlight the transition from a focus on tangible goods and manual labor to a reliance on information, expertise, and intellectual capital as the drivers of economic growth and success. And Peter, why is it not sufficient to, as you say, bribe knowledge workers with higher pay? While offering higher pay to knowledge workers may serve as a short-term incentive it is not a sufficient strategy for attracting, retaining, and motivating these individuals in the long run. Knowledge workers are unique in their motivations, aspirations, and the nature of their work, which necessitates a more comprehensive approach to management and engagement. Let me elaborate on this. While competitive compensation is important, it is just one aspect of a broader strategy for engaging and motivating knowledge workers. Organizations that focus solely on higher pay may overlook the intrinsic motivators that drive these individuals. To effectively attract, retain, and inspire knowledge workers, a holistic approach is required encompassing factors such as meaningful work, autonomy, professional development, work-life balance, and recognition. This approach acknowledges the unique characteristics and motivations of knowledge workers and creates an environment where they can thrive and contribute their best. In your book, Managing in Turbulent Times and other of your writings, you refer to yourself as a social ecologist. Why did you cho choose that term and not, say, management thinker or management consultant? The choice to refer to myself as a social ecologist rather than a management thinker reflects a deliberate attempt to capture the broader scope of my approach to management and its interconnectedness with the larger societal context. The term social ecologist signifies my belief that effective management goes beyond isolated organizational strategies and tactics. It emphasizes the intricate interplay between organizations, individuals, and the socioeconomic environment in which they operate. Much like an ecologist studies the relationships between organisms and their environment, I sought to explore the relationships between businesses, their employees, customers, suppliers, and the broader societal ecosystem. By using the term social ecologist, I aim to convey the idea that management is not a standalone discipline, but a dynamic and interdependent system. 
it recognizes that the success of an organization is influenced by both internal factors and external forces, including economic, cultural, and technological shifts. This perspective encourages a holistic and adaptive approach to management that takes into account the broader social and environmental implications of business decisions. Does one learn more from success or failure, and why do you think that? The question of whether one learns more from success or failure is a thought-provoking and perennial topic. In my view, both success and failure offer distinct and valuable learning experiences, and the true wisdom lies in embracing and extracting insights from both outcomes. Success can teach us about our strength, strategies, and effective approaches. It provides validation for the decisions and actions we have taken. However, success also carries the risk of complacency and overconfidence. It's essential to dissect our successes to understand the contributing factors and replicate them when applicable. Additionally, success can offer a sense of accomplishment and motivation, but it may not always provide the depth of learning that failure can offer. Failure, on the other hand, has the potential to be an even more powerful teacher. When we encounter setbacks or failures, we are forced to examine our assumptions, strategies, and decisions. Failures prompt us to question our approaches, adapt, and innovate. They reveal weaknesses or blind spots that need to be addressed. The process of analyzing failure can lead to deeper self-awareness and a more nuanced understanding of the complexities involved. Furthermore, the emotional impact of failure often creates a strong motivation to learn and improve. In my writings, I have emphasized the concept of productive failure. This refers to failures that are approached with a mindset of learning and growth. When we embrace failure as an opportunity for improvement rather than as a definitive end, we are more likely to extract valuable insights and develop resilience. I understand that, but, but Peter, in your writings, especially in your autobiography, Adventures of a Bystander, you wrote that you personally learn more from success than failure. Uh, you've delved into the pages of Adventures of a Bystander. It's true that in my autobiography, I mentioned that I personally learn more from success than failure. Allow me to provide some context for this perspective. While I acknowledge the profound learning that can emerge from failure, my statement in the autobiography reflects a nuanced viewpoint Based on my personal experiences and observations, I have found that success often reveals patterns, principles, and strategies that work effectively. When an approach leads to success, it's an opportunity to discern what specific factors contributed to that success and how they can be replicated or adapted in other contexts. However, this does not diminish the importance of learning from failure. Failure remains a potent teacher, and it is crucial to carefully analyze failures to uncover valuable insights. What I intended to convey in my autobiography is that the learning from success is often more readily transferable to different situations due to the identification of principles that can be applied in diverse scenarios. Both success and failure have their lessons to offer, and my intention has always been to encourage a mindset of continuous learning from all experiences. My statement in the autobiography was meant to highlight the specific kind of learning that can be derived from success, while still acknowledging the vital role that failure plays in personal and professional growth. 
It's important to approach both outcomes with a willingness to learn, adapt, and refine our understanding of effective management and leadership. All right. Well, thank you, Peter. Unfortunately, we're up against our next break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. And please check out our Patreon channel at patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can subscribe and get our bonus content. And also that channel is is sponsored by 90 Minds, Higher Mind. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. And we are talking to Chat G. Peter D. And Peter, this has been a perennial conversation that we've had on the Soul of Enterprise for quite some time. We'd love for you to explain your nuanced views on the critical differences between efficiency and effectiveness. Certainly, the concepts of efficiency and effectiveness are fundamental to the realm of management and understanding their nuanced differences is essential for optimizing organizational performance. Allow me to elaborate on these critical distinctions. Efficiency refers to the ability to accomplish a task or produce an output with the least amount of resources, time, or effort. It involves maximizing output while minimizing input. In other words, efficiency is about doing things right, streamlining processes, and eliminating wastage. A focus on efficiency aims to optimize resource utilization, reduce costs, and enhance productivity. For example, a manufacturing process that minimizes the use of raw materials and energy to produce a product efficiently is an example of an efficiency-driven approach. Effectiveness, on the other hand, 
relates to the extent to which objectives are achieved and goals are realized. It emphasizes accomplishing the right outcomes and producing results that align with the organization's strategic objectives. Effectiveness is concerned with the broader impact and contribution of activities and initiatives. It is about doing the right things that contribute to the overall success of the organization. An organization that produces high-quality products that meet customer needs and preferences effectively demonstrates an effectiveness-driven approach. Often in your work, you're critical of, of knowledge workers performing tasks that distract from their real work. For example, um, nurses filling out paperwork as opposed to tending to the needs of patients. Would, would you think this applies to professionals such as accountants and lawyers filling out timesheets as opposed to tending to the needs of clients? Indeed, my perspective on knowledge workers and the allocation of their time applies to various professional contexts including accountants and lawyers who may spend significant time on administrative tasks, such as filling out timesheets. The core idea is to maximize the value and impact of knowledge workers by ensuring that their efforts are directed towards activities that align with their expertise and contribute most effectively to organizational goals and client needs. In the case of accountants and lawyers, Administrative tasks such as timesheet management can indeed detract from their ability to provide direct value to clients. While administrative tasks are a necessary part of any profession, they should not consume an undue amount of time and attention, thereby diverting focus from higher value activities. I don't think you ever wrote about after-action reviews, so I'm, I'm curious as to what you might think about them and, and how they might be used in a knowledge firm. While I may not have explicitly written about after-action reviews, the concept aligns well with my principles of continuous learning, adaptability, and effective management in knowledge firms. AARs are a valuable tool that can be applied to enhance performance, foster a culture of learning, and drive improvement in knowledge-intensive organizations. Incorporating after-action reviews into the workflow of knowledge firms can contribute to higher levels of performance, increased client satisfaction, and improved internal processes. By leveraging the insights gained from ARs, organizations can continuously refine their strategies, enhance their service offerings, and stay ahead in a competitive and dynamic marketplace. Peter, in The Effective Executive, you have written that the appraisal interview is the crux of the whole problem. Why are you so critical of annual performance appraisals? Uh, my criticism of annual performance appraisals stems from my belief in effective management practices that empower individuals and foster continuous improvement. While performance appraisals were initially introduced with the intention of evaluating and improving employee performance, I've observed several issues and limitations associated with the traditional annual appraisal process. I'm critical of annual performance appraisals because they occur infrequently, often only once a year. This temporal gap can lead to a lack of timely feedback and hinder the employee's ability to make meaningful adjustments or improvements throughout the year. Traditional appraisals tend to focus on past performance, looking backward rather than forward. This retrospective approach may not adequately address future growth, development, or alignment with evolving organizational goals. Appraisals are susceptible to subjectivity and bias, as they often rely on the perspective of a single manager. 
This can lead to unfair evaluations and discourage open dialogue between employees and supervisors. The anticipation of an annual performance review can create stress and anxiety for employees. This may hinder their ability to perform optimally and contribute to a culture of fear. In some cases, employees may perceive annual appraisals as a mere formality with limited impact on their career progression or compensation. This perception can lead to decreased motivation and engagement. Traditional appraisals may prioritize rating and ranking over developmental discussions. Employees may not receive the guidance and support they need to enhance their skills, address weaknesses, and pursue growth opportunities. Lastly, the rigid structure of annual appraisals may not align well with the dynamic and rapidly changing nature of work and organizational goals. Given these limitations, I have advocated for a shift towards more frequent and informal feedback mechanisms, as well as a greater emphasis on ongoing coaching, mentoring, and professional development. Regular conversations between managers and employees focused on goal-setting, skill enhancement, and performance improvement can create a more supportive and constructive environment for growth. This approach encourages dialogue, continuous learning, and adaptability, ultimately contributing to improved employee engagement, motivation, and organizational effectiveness. So do you think appraisal systems have gotten better in the years since your demise? The evolution of performance appraisal systems has been a topic of ongoing debate and refinement in the management field. Many organizations and experts have recognized the limitations of traditional annual appraisals and have been working to develop more effective and employee-centric approaches. So would you say that eliminating performance appraisals in favor of AARs would be a smart strategy for knowledge firms? Adopting after-action reviews in lieu of traditional performance appraisals can indeed be a smart strategy for knowledge firms, provided it is implemented thoughtfully and aligned with the organization's goals and culture. As I said earlier, ARs offer several advantages that resonate well with the characteristics of knowledge-intensive environments. All right. Well, Peter, this has been great. Unfortunately, we're up against our break. We want to remind our listeners that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Chat G. Peter D. in our last segment. And Peter, I wanted you to explain what you mean by the theory of the business. The theory of the business is a concept I introduced to emphasize the importance of understanding and challenging the fundamental assumptions, beliefs, and strategies that underlie an organization's operations and decision-making. It refers to the set of assumptions and hypotheses that an organization holds about itself, its environment, its customers, and its core competencies. These assumptions collectively shape an organization's identity, purpose, and strategy. In essence, the theory of the business is the mental model that guides an organization's actions, choices, and priorities. It encompasses how an organization perceives its market, defines its value proposition, sets its goals, and makes strategic decisions. You wrote a book called Innovation and Entrepreneurship. In your view, what is the difference between innovation and entrepreneurship? Innovation and entrepreneurship are closely related concepts, but they have distinct meanings and implications within the realm of business and management. Innovation refers to the process of creating and implementing new ideas, products, services, processes, or methods that result in significant improvements, enhancements, or changes. It involves bringing something novel and valuable into existence and encompasses both incremental improvements and groundbreaking breakthroughs. Innovation can occur within existing organizations or as the foundation of new ventures. It is driven by a desire to solve problems, meet unmet needs, and create value for customers and stakeholders. Entrepreneurship refers to the process of identifying and seizing business opportunities, organizing and managing resources, taking calculated risks, and creating new ventures or initiatives with the goal of generating profit and value. Entrepreneurship is about turning innovative ideas into practical, viable, and sustainable business endeavors. Entrepreneurs often play a pivotal role in driving economic growth, job creation, and technological advancement. In essence, while innovation and entrepreneurship are interconnected and can reinforce each other, innovation is about the creation of new ideas and solutions. While entrepreneurship involves the practical implementation and commercialization of those ideas, 
Both concepts are essential drivers of economic development, business success, and societal progress. You also suggest that leaders should spend the majority of their time pursuing opportunities rather than solving problems. Why do you say that? I advocate for leaders to spend the majority of their time pursuing opportunities rather than solely focusing on solving problems based on my belief in proactive and strategic management. While both problem-solving and opportunity pursuit are important aspects of leadership, emphasizing opportunities aligns with a forward-thinking and growth-oriented approach. Why do you believe that there is no such thing as business ethics? My stance on the concept of business ethics is not that I believe there is no such thing as ethics in business, but rather that I emphasize the importance of ethics as an integral part of business operations, rather than something separate or compartmentalized. My perspective is not that business ethics do not exist, but rather that ethics should be an inseparable and inherent part of business practices. This approach reflects my belief in the responsibility of businesses to contribute positively to society and uphold principles that go beyond mere profit-seeking. You wrote a book in 1993 called The Post-Capitalist Society. Explain what you meant by that term. The book aims to provide insights into the evolving nature of society and the potential shifts in how economic and social systems operate. The traditional models of capitalism, which were rooted in the industrial age, were undergoing significant challenges and changes due to the rise of knowledge-based industries, technological advancements, and shifts in societal values. These changes were giving rise to a new era with characteristics distinct from the traditional capitalism. Did you really skinny dip in your pool when CEOs came to seek your advice? While the specific story of skinny dipping may be a colorful depiction and indeed is difficult to confirm, it is my philosophy and principles regarding effective management, leadership, and the pursuit of meaningful results that continue to be of lasting value to individuals and organizations seeking guidance and inspiration. Well, Peter, thank you very much. That was wonderful. And Ed, uh, this is really interesting uh, experiment. What do you think? Uh, I think we should get feedback from our listeners and see who else that they would like us to interview. And uh, I guess I'll see you in 167 hours. Sounds good. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, that's noon Pacific. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.